is probably going to be the most difficult reading I've ever done in a church. <coughs> I've been doing readings in churches since I was a teenager. This reading is probably the most difficult. You, I would suggest, have never read it. I don't think I ever have. And I'm going to read some things that you'll never ever expect to hear read in church. I look forward to what Tim's got to say. And it's from Judges chapter 19, Judges 19 on page 262. Judges 19 on page 262. After which we look forward to hear our minister open up this chapter to us. In those days Israel had no king. Now a Levite who lived in a remote area in the hill country of Ephraim took a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. But she was unfaithful to him. She left him and went back to her parents' home in Bethlehem. Judah. After she'd been there for four months, her husband went to her to persuade her to return. He had been with him his servant and two donkeys. She took him into her parents' home, and when her parents saw him, he gladly welcomed him. His father-in-law, the woman's father, prevailed on him to stay. So he remained with him three days, eating and drinking and sleeping there. On the fourth day, they got up early and he prepared to leave. But the woman's father said to his son-in-law, Refresh yourself with something to eat, then you can go. So the two of them sat down to eat and drink together. Afterwards, the woman's father said, Please stay tonight and enjoy yourself. And when the man got up to go, his father-in-law persuaded him, so he stayed there that night. On the morning of the fifth day, when he rose to go, the woman's father said, Refresh yourself. Wait till afternoon. So the two of them ate together. Then when the man, with his concubine and his servant, got up to leave his father-in-law, the woman's father said, Now look, it's almost evening. Spend the night here. The day is nearly over. Stay and enjoy yourself. Early tomorrow morning you can get up and be on your way home. But unwilling to stay another night, the man left and went towards Jebus, that is Jerusalem with his two saddled donkeys and his concubine. When they were near Jebus, and the day was almost gone, the servant said to his master, Let's stop at this city of the Jebusites and spend the night. His master replied, No, we won't go into any city whose people are not Israelites. We will go to Gilboa. He added, Come. Let's try to reach Gilboa or Ramah and spend the night in one of those places. So they went on and the sun set as they neared Gibeah in Benjamin. There they stopped to spend the night. They went and sat in the city square 
but no one took them in for the night. That evening, an old man from the hill country of Ephraim, who was living in Geba, the inhabitants of the place where Benjamites came in from his work in the fields. When he looked up and saw the traveller in the city square, the old man said, Where are you going? Where did you come from? He answered, We are on our way from Bethlehem in Judah to a remote area in the hill country of Ephraim, where I live. I have been to Bethlehem in Judah, and now I am going to the house of the Lord. No one has taken me in for the night. We have both straw and fodder for our donkeys and bread and wine for ourselves, your servants, me, the woman, and the young man with us. We don't need anything. You're welcome in my house, the old man said. Let me supply whatever you need. Only spend the night in the square. So he took him into his house and fed his donkeys. After they had washed their feet, they had something to eat and drink. While they were enjoying themselves, one of the wicked men in the city surrounding the house, pounding on the door, they shouted the old man who owned the house, Bring out the man who came to your house so that we can have sex with him. The owner of the house went outside and said to them, No, my friends, don't be so vile. This man is my guest. Don't do this outrageous thing. Look, here is my virgin daughter and his concubine. I will bring them out to you now and you can use them and do to them whatever you wish. But as for this man, don't do such an outrageous thing. But the men would not listen to him. So the men took his concubine, sent her outside to them, and they raped her and abused her throughout the night. And at dawn they let her go. At daybreak, the woman went back into the house where her master was staying, fell down at the door and lay there until daylight. When the master got up in the morning and opened the door of the house and stepped out to continue on his way, there lay his concubine, fallen in the doorway of the house and her hands on the threshold. He said to her, get up, let's go. But there was no answer. Then the man put her on the donkey and set out for home. When he reached home, he took a knife and cut up his concubine limb by limb into 12 parts and sent them into all the areas of Israel. Everyone who saw it was saying to one another, such a thing has never been seen or done not since the day the Israelites came up out of Egypt. Just imagine. We must do something. So speak up. Father, we do indeed pray that you should speak in these moments to teach us of your will and purpose, to illuminate for us the difficult things written in your word, May our hearts be open to hear the things that you would say and humble enough to accept our place in your story. 
that you may form us in your likeness, that we may become more like you. For Jesus' sake, amen. I recommend you leave your Bibles open as we work through this, because this is a terrible chapter. And as we read it, at the beginning we might think that we have entered into a love story, the middle part of a love story. We know how love stories go. We've seen them often enough in, uh, in the films. There's the whirlwind romance of falling in love, that joyous, passionate madness of it all. And then when things get a bit more complicated and there are conflicts of interest that have to be sorted out, there's the separation. One of the partners, usually the woman, on account of the crassness of the man in the films, I have to say, she leaves, gets on a train or a boat or a plane or just goes home to mum. And then when we think all is lost, right at the last, there's the reunion at the station or at the airport or he's climbing up the rear fire escape with a rose in his mouth. They embrace and everyone lives happily ever after. And we might think in the first moment, that this is the story we're going to encounter. As verse 1 says, a Levite who lived in a remote area of the hill country of Ephraim took a concubine from Bethlehem to Judah. There's the passionate love. But she was unfaithful to him, left him and went back to her parents in Bethlehem. There's the breakup. You can tell that this was written by a man, or at least edited by a man and translated by a man from a man's point of view she was unfaithful to him you know these are words that uh, are victim blaming you'll see that as we go along which is a, a tendency that we do they don't mean that she was in bed with another person the Hebrew text actually says she became angry with him it means she no longer was going to put up with the nonsense and left. Now, we don't know what that nonsense really was that made her angry. But as we read through the text, we get a sense of what it might have been like. And we can say that this Levite man had nothing to say to her in life. This is no love story. In verse 3, we're told that he goes down to Bethlehem, uh, to her father, in order to persuade her to return. Other translations have it uh, to speak tenderly to her. And another translation, to speak to her heart. But the way that the story comes to us, when he gets there, there's not one word spoken by him to her. Nothing is said. He spends the next five days eating and drinking with her father, mates together, doing the male bonding thing. In October, our staff team here had a day's training on the issues of domestic abuse. And on the same day, coincidentally, uh, our MP, Rosie Duffield, spoke passionately and movingly in the House of Commons about her experience at the manipulations 
and uh, control at the hands of a domestic abuser to whom she was married. And one of the aspects we learned about was the promises, the assurances, the apparent remorse, the pledges and the commitments that it will never happen again, that they're sorry, that they will, or they have changed. And we learned from uh, Bidman's categories of psychological torture that isolation of the victim is the first thing they do on the list. Isolation. Long hours of silence and refusing to speak or look at them. It's just how this Levite was treating the woman he supposedly went to speak tenderly to. He doesn't even consult her on the way back, on the journey, about which town to stay in. He discusses that with his servant. Immediately, the psychological abuse has returned. And the Levite, whatever he thought his intentions were, to persuade, speak tenderly, reach her heart, the truth is he had nothing to say to her in life. Nothing life-giving. She's isolated even from her own father in his home. And her father, initially welcoming the Levite, then panders to his attentions and indulgence and he becomes part of the abuse. So brothers, you who are fathers and husbands here, speak life to your wives and your daughters. Enable them to be the social beings that they are. Allow them the freedom to think and speak and hold differing opinions which are equally as valid as yours. Do not be the silent, brooding, unpredictable uh, menace that domestic bullies are. Christian men are motivated by love, true love, that is not possessive, true to their word is life and freedom giving but we ought to note also that this woman was not the wife to the Levite the text loosely uses that term to, dis to describe the relationships but she was not married to him she was a concubine a kind of complicated arrangement that uh, the Jewish people had, a sexual partner that was in some socially acceptable form, uh, a sexual partner that doesn't require marriage. Perhaps not unlike the common practice today of cohabitation, living together that people do in our day. Maybe they do it for economic reasons, maybe because of some personal rejection of marriage as a form of relationship that regularises a relationship. But it's often interesting, isn't it, to see how in the courts these days, people who are not married want to reject the commitments and responsibilities, but they want the rights and the benefits as if they were married. But this arrangement with this woman 
as a concubine and a Levite is not an equal arrangement. She's not of equal marital status. She is his possession. Verse 1 says, he took her and she lived with him in his home. And it's a root of her vulnerability. So if I've said something to the brothers, it's right then that I should say something to the sisters. What we might teach our daughters. Living in uncommitted relationships is not the best. And perhaps we should be saying to our young women, teaching our daughters that calling the men to commitment in marriage is an important part of claiming your God-given status as an equal partner, as Christian marriage always has understood it. It's about the confidence of being a woman able to control your own life, calling men to commitment and saying no to those men if they won't commit to building relationships that are mutually supportive. Being, too, uh, uh, being alone is not too terrible to compromise your womanhood. So men, speak life. Women, claim your personhood. Well, if there's nothing to say to her in death, there's nothing, as this unfortunate story unfolds, there's nothing either to say about her in death. After this five days of backslapping with her father, the Levite gets up late to leave. The woman goes with him. Now, whether or not she wants to go with him, is uh, we don't know that, and it's a bit of an irrelevance, except to say that perhaps, in a terrible foreshadowing of what happens later in the chapter, she is pushed out of the door by her father as a convenience to him, no longer having to uh, accommodate and support an unmarried and unmarriageable woman in the house. Well, they're on the journey and the evening draws near and they pass by the city of Jerusalem because it's not a Jewish city at that time. Occupied, we're told, in verse 11, by the Jebusites, not Jewish people. And they move on to Gebir, where they might expect some godly uh, living uh, to be treated in a godly manner as Jews amongst Jews. Gabir is about five miles away. And they stop in the town square, which is the customary thing to do if you were travelling in those days. It's kind of stopping in the town square as a request for accommodation. But they stayed there in the town square if no one took them in. Well, on this occasion, eventually the old man does take them in. Men of the town uh, come to the house and we hear this in verse 22, pounding on the door and shouting, bring out the man who came to stay with you so that we can have sex with him. It is kind of shocking to hear and, be, and, and, and to, uh, to, to discover is in our scripture. 
And it said that the main concern, it's often said that the main concern about this is that it is a violation of hospitality. That's the offence. Just as in the city of Sodom, there was a similar uh, occasion just before it's destroyed where uh, judgment comes, we're told, because it's a violation of hospitality. But if it is that, it's, it's only about the violation of hospitality to the man. Because the old man in verse 23 says, No, my friends. Isn't that strange language to use for the people who want to rape your house guest? But anyway, no, my friends, don't be so vile since this man is my guest. And then, because he thought what they wanted to do was outrageous, he offers his own daughter and the concubine in the man's stead. You can use them and do whatever you want with them. But as for this man, don't do such an outrageous thing. The mob persists and in the end it's the Levite who throws his concubine outside and they abuse her to the extent that at dawn she crawls back to the, and clings on to the threshold of the door of the house that has so abused her. Abused her emotionally and psych- physically, psychologically, socially. And I choose to believe that she died there at that door. Because to think that she is still alive when he puts her on a donkey without medical attention, without treatment, or even worse, that she's alive when he takes the knife and cuts her up is just too terrible to contemplate. So she's dead on the doorstep and the Levite man opens the door in the morning to leave and you can imagine that uncaring poke of the toe as he says to her, get up, we're going. And there's her lifeless body, no response. So he puts her on the donkey and he leaves. And we are given nothing, nothing of sorrow at her death. No remorse at his part in the outrage. No sense that there has been, uh, he's been part of the most wicked and evil behaviour that can be conceived. This is not a woman to him. She was an object, a possession, something to be expended if the need arose and in his opinion it had and he did. To save himself, He threw her to the mob. And it's a bizarre ending to the chapter there in verse 29 when he takes the knife and he cuts her up and he sends parts of her body to all the areas of Israel in an appeal, presumably, for some kind of justice and compensation at the loss of his property. And the way that the writer tells it the Levite has nothing to say about her in her death. But we are given that opportunity. We 
can say something about it. Verse 30 says, Everyone who saw it said, Such a thing has never been seen or done. But what thing is referred to? Is it the gang rape and murder? Is it the loss of his property by coercion? Is it the wider things of domestic maltreatment and of the woman in the house of the Levite and of her father? Is it his failure to protect her? Is it his cowardly throwing of her out the door to protect himself? Is it his own culpability in killing her by giving her to the mob? What is this thing? And we will want to answer yes to all of those things. But even as we do, answer the questions about the behaviour of the Levite man and his attitudes, perhaps we can see in our own horrors of today's world. Just imagine, verse 30 concludes, just imagine. Do something. Speak up. Imagine, do something, speak up. That's a challenge to the silence over the whole chapter. The failure to say anything to her in life and the failure to say anything about her in death. It's a challenge over all the social injustices and silences of our world. The failure that we have been part of until these Me Too days brings it to our attention. And the silence on these things that Scripture is giving us is a gift. It's there so that we can sit and reflect on it. So that we can imagine. Imagine ourselves there and in this story. Seeing our nature in the people of the story. Who who would we be? What part would we be playing? Do these dreadful things happen to us? And no doubt for some of us it is or has happened. Or like the Levite, the old man or even the mob, are we part of the doing of them? Imagine in the silence. Imagine. But then when we have imagined ourselves in the story... Do something. Speak up. Let us not allow these things in our community to happen without us speaking up. Which is why thy kingdom come as a slot is important for us to see how what we do here in this room translates into the way we interact with our world to make it a better place by our words of life and by calling out the injustices and not being silent. Well, if there was nothing that to say to her, about to her in, in life and nothing to say about her in death, the thing that causes most anger, I suggest, particularly for the women, is that there is nothing to say by God. Nothing said by God at all. Why didn't he do something? Why 
didn't he stop it? These are real questions of faith, true questions of faith, that we may keep asking and trusting him even when the answer is not clear. Verse 29 is a key. When the Levi reached home, he took the knife and cut her up. He took the knife. They're the same words that are used to describe what Abraham was going to do to Isaac when he made, went to make that sacrifice. He took the knife. When Abraham took the knife, God spoke and Isaac was spared. But when the Levite took the knife, there's only silence from God. And we only begin to make sense of it when we remember that Israel, verse 1, had no king. It's a comment that comes again at the last verse of the book, two chapters later. Uh, By the end of the two chapters that are coming, in this terrible story, 65,000 Jewish men and women are dead. 400 women in Gilead have been uh, forced in, uh, drawn into forced marriage and a further 200 women at Shiloh have been raped in order to force them into marriage uh, also. Three chapters of human depravity. The reverberations of sin go on ever wider and more horrific. Don't ever think that sin, no matter how small, doesn't matter. It multiplies. And the king, the king in Israel, he was there to represent God to the people. And he was there to administer God's ways in the land, ordering society according to God's laws of love. But Israel had no king. It's a picture, a kind of metaphor It tells us that this was a nation that wasn't even looking for God. Not even seeking after him. The full quote in the final verse of the book is that there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. You see, the voice of God was silent because no one was looking to him. And no one was listening for him. Everyone thought they knew better, doing what was right in their own eyes. See, when when Abraham took the knife, he was looking for God. He was trying to find out what God wanted, trying to be obedient to the will of God. So when, when God spoke to Abraham, Abraham heard But no one in Israel was doing that when the Levite took the knife. Israel had no king. And without God, the men of Israel were incapable of doing good. They had no idea what good was. And so this chapter, chapter 19, is the beginning 
of the degeneration of a Jewish society. The beginning of the story of a nation that turns people in on themselves, beginning to destroy itself, eating itself, because they were godless. And the final two chapters are unbelievably horrible. And they come as a consequence of this case of domestic abuse. Because there was no king in Israel. And everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So who is our king? Who guides us? Who works in us? Who works through us? That we might truly do good. That we might be men who speak life, giving words to our wives and daughters and model gentleness of the soul to our sons. That we might be women who call men to account and to commit themselves to love. That we might be people who do something and speak up because we have empathy and concern for the injustices of our community. Who is our king? Only God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In the end, it's him who speaks by his word for all of those who are abused and who suffer the injustices over which silence all too often prevails.